Losing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Today, joined by Rod Argent, uh, singer, songwriter, keyboardist. Um, Rod first found success with the Zombies in the 60s and has continued to make great music up to this very day. Uh, we're delighted he's here to discuss his work with us on today's episode of Composing Myself. So, welcome, Rod, and thank you for coming. We, we tend to start these podcasts by asking a question about your musical memory. What, what was the first piece of music that really struck you? that you remember being affected by? Uh, when I was four years old, I heard, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much it affected me, but I heard, um, I heard a, a popular song at the time called Five Minutes More. Um, and uh, that's my, my very first memory of anything popular, well, of anything really. That, apparently I used to sing it in the... Um, in the hairdressers. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was it by? Do you remember? Do you know? I've got. I would have to look that up. Yeah. It's by someone quite well known. Uh, you know, like, but possibly not Frank Sinatra. The other yeah. song that, when I was the same age, which is so incredibly politically incorrect now, um, was called something like "I don't want to." You can have a. She's too fat for me. Which she would. Which she would <laughs> never, never. <laughs> Countenance now. <laughs> Brilliant. And and when did you start? Did, when did you move from listener to actually making music? Was, was that? I know you were singing in the hairdresser. Maybe that's that was the starting point. But where? When did you consciously make music? Well, the first thing I remember is my. Well, my father um, was in a semi pro. He was a semi pro dance band leader from the age of seventeen to the age of eighty three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we always had a piano in the house. And also um, my mother was one of eight children. Um, and it, my grandparents' house, there was always a piano there too. So wherever I went, I was really fascinated by the piano. And I would pick out tunes very early on, really. Um, and I was, strangely enough, um, I was desperate to get some lessons. But I was always better finding out things myself, really. Um, and when I was about seven years old, uh, I had a couple of years. No, no, maybe I was. No, I think. Uh, I think. Yeah, I think I was probably about seven. I had a couple of years piano lessons by a local piano teacher, but it didn't really stimulate me. And even though I, I obtained the rudiments of of music and. Um, you know, found out where the notes were on the clef, etc. I always wanted to find out things for, for myself. And actually, strangely enough, I approached the piano less during those two years than, than even before or since. But I remember even before that, uh, if I would go, I used to drive my grandparents mad because if we went down there, um, I would always go into their front room where they had the piano. Uh, and I would always try to um, uh, pick out the tune on the, on the piano and and I had a pretty good sense of where things were and I I could always visualize things I always remember um my parents buying me, buying me a harmonica and I sort of instantly I god knows how but I sort of could visualize the scale in front of my my eyes I could visualize where the whole steps were on the half steps I, I don't know how but I yeah. saw things in a visual way like that. And so I could always play that. As soon as they bought it for me, I could, uh, once I got the technique of just sucking and blowing, I could pretty much play a tune immediately um, on it. And, I, I, and I, I've always retained that. Um, so, for instance, um, well, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but if I'm watching a, a, a film and there's a piece of film music that I like, I can instantly go to the piano and... Um, and, and and play it with an approximation of the harmony and the chords. Um, so, you know, that, that seemed to be with me right from the earliest age. And my mother, I had two sources of um, becoming excited by music, really. And w- when I was very young, um, 
my mother, the first thing I remember was um, a, an aria from Tosca that my mum loved. It was one of the very mm. popular ones. Um, I think it's, um, I always remember it had an, she had an, a, an English version of it and it had a, a, um, a very strange title in England called um, Strange Harmony of Contrasts. Um, mm. But it was from Tosca and it was, it was where the guy um, looks at the painting early on in the opera mm-hmm. and, 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 and sings about the painting, basically. Um, very, very well-known aria, but I remember loving that. Um, and, and sort of, but my mother always used to listen to very, very sort of popular classical music, and that's all I heard. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was about nine, she was very, very keen on me getting into a choir. Um, and first of all, it was a local church choir, but soon after that, um, I joined St. Albans Cathedral Choir. And, and, and luckily enough, um, uh, the, there was a new master of music, a guy called Peter Herford, only 26 when he came. Um, and that, that whole experience was a, really a fantastic um, opening of my mind to all sorts of music because if you look back on 400 years um, of some of the best music ever composed because they were composed by the premier composers you know that that was one of their major outlets really um, uh, religious music um, as well as secular music and that's when I first heard Bach and um, ah. and I always remember actually my I can remember the feeling to this day. We had um, Peter Herford mounted a, a full version of the St. Matthew Passion. And I remember when we started singing the first chorus, um, I, I just melted. And, 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 it, and, and I know this sounds incredibly pretentious, but it sort of felt to me like coming home. It felt to me like, mm. yeah, this is what music should be. You know, this is exactly what it should be. Um, so that was a major... Um, impact, a major experience. And because he was such a fantastic organist and he uh, instituted a complete um, refit of the organ, which cost a fortune, um, but uh, I occasionally used to go up into the organ loft and hear, you know, one, um, one part thundering out from the, the pedals, another part in a different part of the organ loft um, thundering out another line. <laughs> Um, it was just fantastic, you know, and, and that, that opened my, my whole world to music. But I, I never thought that I would have anything to do with classical music at all. Mm. But, but then, then um, when, when I got completely knocked out um, by hearing for the very first time Elvis sing Hound Dog when I was, <laughs> um, when I was 11 years old and... I realise now that was my introduction to black music by proxy, really, mm. um, because it, even some of the race stations in the US at that time thought Elvis was black. I mean, it seems yeah. strange now to, to think about that, but they did. Um, and I still think his voice, I've still got those early records, uh, Sun Records and, and the very first records he made. For me, just for the first three years, uh, after three years, yeah. I wasn't really interested, but mm. those first three years still sound pretty transcendent to me. I mean, his voice was like nobody else. And that completely knocked me out. But, and I can immediately, even though I was only 11, I thought, as soon as I'm old enough, I want to form a band. Um, oh, wow. Uh, but, but uh, you know, that had to wait about three or four years. Um, <laughs> and I never thought I would ever be able to have anything to do with American music, so, so, so-called, you know, because it's, it felt like something from another planet. Um, mm. But the extraordinary thing—I'm sorry—I'm jumping around all over the place. No, here, but, this is great. Um, but the extraordinary thing was when I wrote my first uh, recorded composition, which was "She's Not There," um, and it became number one in America. Um, we went over to America, uh, but then it wasn't for another thirty years when I was doing an interview that I found that Elvis had three of my songs on his jukebox, and that was wow. only eight years after. I was 11 years old, you know, so oh, wow. it, it was pretty, pretty unreal. That's um, mind Sorry, I've zipped all over the place there. So Honey, I'm... don't you worry about that. I mean, I'm fascinated. I mean, the fact that you are, you know, 
you haven't had a, if you like, a formal classical training. You're one of the no. meanest keyboards around. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, getting that big fix of British choral music, which I think is what we are best at in the world, you know, and singing mm. Albans Abbey. And that aria from Tosca, it's Recondit Harmonia. Da, yes, that's da, it. That one, Absolutely. yeah? Yeah, that's the one. And, yeah. um, you know, so just being able to be who you are from just experiencing those amazing things. I, I, I take my hat off to you, sir. And, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I think when de- your career, which has spanned decades, and you're yeah. still writing and performing, do you yeah. have a kind of routine? Is there a better time of day to write? Do you, do you disappear at the studio in the middle of the night? What's your kind of rhythm? No, I don't disappear in the studio in the middle of the night, and except when we're recording, and and, yeah. and it goes on and on. Um, but um, no, I would, I would normally work very civilized hours. I mean, the great thing is that um, this horrible time we've been through uh, mm. with COVID, um, and which I actually got just before going to the states. We've only just come back from the states, um, but. The one one good thing about it was that it gave me the chance to be in my studio and 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 be able to have the time to constantly revisit things without being rushed or whatever. Um, and it enabled me to write nine new songs for the album we've just completed. And strangely, you're talking about the um, the, the sort of classical thing, uh, and and we were talking about Bach. Well, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, two or three, actually it must be 2018, thinking about it, um, we went to the Bach Festival in Leipzig. And, oh. and for the first time I heard in performance, and I always think that classical music always gets a, a raw deal because um, people tend to think of it as, as smooth and relaxing and everything, whereas actually it's completely stimulating and exciting. Mm-hmm. And... and one of the problems is often you don't hear um, the the actual excitement of performance because you're in the midst of it. You know, it tends to be turned down on the record player um, yeah. and you, you just don't get that feeling. But um, the, the thing that knocked me out most of all was when we went to St. Thomas's um, and there was a full performance of the um, Mass in B minor by Bach. Oh, heaven, yeah. And, and it was fantastic. You know, you, you had the... The antiphonal choirs, you know, the two choirs, at different parts of the, um, just like Bart would have heard it when he was at St. Thomas, um, both sides of the church, that the volume was immense. I mean, it was just so exciting. Um, and I thought, my God, this is like a rock concert. You know, people just don't get this when they, when they play things on record. Um, but it was, it was just so exciting. And actually... I then came home and, and played most days for a while the, um, the B minor mass, but from the Sanctus onwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there was, there was a thing in the Sanctus, there was a part of it that I adapted for the first track on our new album because hey. it was, a, um, I mean, basically, I mean, it's nothing like it really, but basically you, um, uh, I, I, I I start, I mean, some of the, the first part of a particular section of it was a wonderful chord sequence. And I sort of nicked that, but then changed it to make it um, complete and, and in a concise sense, really. Um, and so I did write new, new bits to that chord sequence, but I, I preserved the first, uh, the first sequence of about uh, eight, or, eight or nine chord changes. Um, and then, and then, you know, built it around there and then did a different section in the middle. But, you know, that's what I often find, that, that triggers are wonderful and then you can use your own imagination and you can, you can take the trigger from there. Very envious of you being in that church hearing that music. You know, that oh, Donna, well. the, the yeah. Donna Nobis at the end of that is just one oh, of yes. the best things ever. Oh, it's just... It's a good, well, he, he regarded that as his summing up, didn't he? Uh, he yeah. absolutely did. You know, yeah. and it, I, whenever I hear it, I get goosebumps. Me too. I, I, I've got a question, actually. Which, oh, yeah. um, I, I'm not as familiar with classical music as you two, but um, I was really interested that you, you had this rich background of different sorts of music, you know, pre-Elvis music, 
Priavis Park, the, 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 about the fat girl. I can't remember exactly the title of it. Then all of this classical music and the choral music. And your dad was um, a band leader. When you started playing Elvis music, what did he think of it? He, he didn't condemn it, but he just sort of kept quiet, really. Um, but, I mean, I did ca- also, uh, I just love the, the whole gamut of, of music, really. And, and I think the time around 1958, I would say, um, just at the end of that period I was talking about with Elvis, um, there was a wonderful period of jazz, yeah. uh, particularly with the Miles Davis um, quintet, first of all, that, that um, had a Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane yeah. um, just before Kind of Blue. And yeah. I remember, I, I think I must have been about 15. Um, no. Yes, I was about 15. But in fact, that first quintet, which was the first thing I heard of Miles, was a couple of years before, I think. But what I didn't realise at the time, all these things, you know, have an influence of what you're doing. I, I only ever thought that we were just trying to play Beatles music, that we were just trying to... That's all I ever thought. But I'm, many years later, I realised that um, unconsciously, these things, without you realising it, and I never, ever tried to include anything classical or jazz in what we were doing, but they just sort of came through. Um, and um, there was... I think it was such a rich time for music around that time. Um, and um, I remember many years later when Pat Metheny first started, I met him and I didn't think he'd know who I was at all. It was right at the beginning of his thing. And someone introduced me and he said, oh, Rod Argent, you wrote She's Not There. And I was completely amazed. And he said, oh, that's the, he said, that's the song that made me feel that I had a way ahead um, fusing um, sort of pop music with jazz, really. Um, he said, all that modal stuff. And I thought, I said, thank you very much. And I went, and I went away, I thought, there's nothing modally and she's not there. But then, <laughs> but then I, um, I went away and because I was fascinated by what, what he said. And I realised that the, the opening chord sequence, which I just thought of as an A minor seventh to a D seventh uh, chord, um, actually I'd superimposed without knowing anything about it I'd superimposed a little modal sequence that fit over, over that um, without ever knowing. But that was because of Milestones. And I, and I later found out that Milestones was um, his first venture into modality before he did um, Kind of Blue. Um, and, you know, and I still love that period of jazz, you know, very much. Um, and, and I'll still play the early Miles. Strangely enough, as someone who was um, in... In in my second band, Argent, in the 70s, um, I remember going to a, a really sort of down-home black club in Chicago when we were playing there. And we were the only white people in there. There were about two or three people in there. And I, and I, I dared, because I'm quite shy really, but I dared to go up to Herbie Hancock in, in the... Uh, in the interval and and he just was on the first wave with his electric band and you know everyone was really sort of digging that but i i went up to him and said and and, and i sort of dared to say oh we're on the same label as you you know we've we've got this record out that's a big hit and everything holds your head up mm-hmm. um but i said you couldn't play maiden voyage could you and he was completely you know uh, taken aback um, because it's a solo piano thing. Um, and, uh, and he did. He, after the interval, he just played that on solo piano. And it was so different to anything else he was playing. And, and it was just really fantastic. So it was that period before the electric. Once Miles started doing the electric stuff, I sort of didn't mind it, but I really, really tuned in and still do to the stuff before that. So, so ske- Sketches of Spain and Porgy and Bess and... Kind of blue, bought, obviously. Yeah, the stuff that he did with Gil Evans. The, uh, the, yeah, the I love that. Yeah, um, but I, I bought when I was, and I was only fifteen, and we'd only just started the um, the band, the Zombies, then. Um, but I bought, um, I bought, kind of blue. No, the first thing I bought was Miles Ahead, and yeah. then I bought, um, kind of blue, and then I bought Sketches of Spain. Um, yeah, I, I had those three Gil Evans collaborations 
Um, but I still loved his small. I mean, I can still sing you the, uh, the solos in my <laughs> or at least part of them. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you end up writing? Were, were you writing songs before the Zombies, or did, did and did the Zombies sort of start as a covers band, and then you had to write songs, as it were? Or what, what was the chronology of that? I wrote one song before. Um, before the Zombies was formed. And I'd forgotten that for years, actually. But my cousin, who was four years older than me, and the guy that introduced me to Elvis, um, and, and was a huge help always. But, I mean, he, he joined the Kinks later. That's he right, found, yeah. Found a member with me of Argent. Um, but uh, he had a band called the Blue Tones. Um, not the more famous one that yeah. happened later, but a band called the Blue Tones. Um, one of the first electric bands in the whole of the UK, or certainly in the South anyway. Um, and I wrote a song for him that I, I'd, I'd forgotten for years. And it was, it was very, I mean, this was, uh, it was Beatles influence. So, excuse me. Um, it must have been, it must have been after 62. So I must have been 17, actually. Um, and... Uh, so that's not true because the zombies had formed by then. But I wrote this song um, that was very Beatles derived, very sort of derived, started from Please Please Me, you know. And, and uh, But it sounds charming. He recorded it unbelievably, and I didn't know this for many years. His manager took them to Olympic Studios and recorded oh. it. And recorded it there. Yeah. Um, I, I and, used to run Olympic Studios, strangely did enough. You really? Yeah, I ran I ran Abbey Road and Olympic and Townhouse Studios for EMI. Yeah, fantastic, which, which oh, a great, well great thing. Yeah. Apart from that, uh, and it had a million chords in it. I was uh, and and Jim, my cousin, said, "Oh my God, there's so many chords in this." <laughs> <laughs> you know? But um, but they liked it and they recorded it. And they used to do it on stage, and and I was knocked out with that. But then the second song I wrote was, was uh, and third song that I wrote was, um, the second song that I wrote was just before we entered the beat competition, which we won, and Dick James came back into our dressing room afterwards and offered us a, um, a, a deal for a single with oh, um, one session with um, at Decca, you know, so yeah. that was our first recording. And... Um, Someone that we knew that was in the music business had to look over the contracts. He said, it's pretty good, really, but he suggested a few changes. But he said, you know, you could always write something yourself. And the only people that heard that phrase, really, or that it made any impression on, were Chris White, our bass player, and, and me. And I went away, and in the next two weeks, I wrote, she's not there. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, the first song that I'd written... Before that was called It's All Right With Me, which still gets a lot of plays. Um, but um, that was, um, so that must have been probably around the beginning of 63 or something like that. And then in 64, we recorded that and she's not there. And then unbelievably, you know, it was just like a dream, really. It went to number one in America. We had a, we had a, a something. I, I remember being in America and phoning home, which was a big deal in those days. Yeah. Really, really hard. And I phoned, and I was still living at my mum and dad. So my mum answered the phone, and she said, "Oh, you've just been on the nine o'clock news." And I thought, "Oh my god, what have I done?" <laughs> <laughs> but um, but they said you. We were the first band to get a number one in America. That was Cashbox at the time. We were number two in Billboard, I think, something like that. Um, but they were equivalent magazines at that time. Um, but he, uh, they said on the 9 o'clock news, we were the first band after the Beatles, English band, to, to get a number one with a self-written composition. So that was the, oh, wow. uh, that was wow. the, that was the news at that point. <laughs> was, that, was that your debut single? That was our debut single, yeah. Yeah, so you'd be the first with a debut single to go to yeah. the Bourne as well, I would think. Oh, yeah. really? Is that true? You must be, yeah. yeah. It could well be, yeah. yeah. Wow. Fabulous. I Sorry, Jill, I interrupted some, you. Like, hey, don't worry. I was reading some statistics. Um, and even before streaming, you guys were netting, you know, 14, 15 million airplays, you know? 
And now you're like up 148 million. You know, it's wow. absolutely unbelievable. And I want to go back to the zombies because if I've got the zombie here, I need to ask you, why did you call yourselves the zombies? Well, really, because we were desperately in search of a name. And um, the uh, honestly, for a week, we were, I think, the Mustangs and something else that about 20 bands in the country would have. And then... You know, like The Searchers um, was taken from a John Wayne movie. So we were thinking of um, <laughs> other cowboy movies. <laughs> and I think for a week... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but but uh, for about a week, I think we were the Sundowners. And then our bass player at the time, who was only with us for a year, um, he, he went away and became a doctor in Canada. Um, and we've just seen him on the last tour, actually. Oh. Um, but he suggested the zombies now this was the time before any sort of modern zombie films had ever been made and i sort of vaguely knew that it was a bit exotic and it had something with to do with haiti and you know the the, the sort of sleeping dead or, or whatever they were walking dead um but i didn't know any more than that colin had no idea what a zombie was and hated the name um but i thought in my head i thought that's fantastic because the first thing you think of when you think about the Beatles uh, is not a, a play on the word beat or you don't think about um, insects or anything like that. You just think about um, John, Paul, George and Ringo. Mm, um, that's right. And, and, and I thought if we were lucky enough to get any sort of people knowing us, then um, th that's what they would think. And, and so I thought no one else would have that name. And, and I remember the very first TV I ever did. I'm, I'm a pretty vague person now, now and I was then. Um, I was wandering around the um, Ready, Steady, Go studios and I completely lost my way. felt like a complete warren, you know, and everything was live. You know, you had to, you had to be where you were supposed <laughs> to be. So I walked down a corridor and then behind a closed door, I heard a Miles Davis track being played. And I knocked on the door. I said, excuse me, is, is that Miles playing? And he said, yeah. Um, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, you're, it was Manfred Mann. And he, oh. said, you're, he said, you're Rod Argent, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, oh, man, I love your record. He said, but oh. you have to change that name. <laughs> 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 um, but anyway, then, then, so there we were the zombies. Yeah. Well, I think the Beatles is a terrible name, actually, when you think well, about if you, it. If you analyse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just is, it means something beyond the word, really. But, uh, yeah, totally. I, think, I think Zombies is a great name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to be very um, embarrassed about, you know, at one point in my career, about, you know, if you met the local vicar somewhere and said, hey, yeah. what's, what's the name of your band? And I'd say, <laughs> well, it's the Zombies, you know, <laughs> sort of look away. <laughs> so how, how did you choose the name of your second band? Uh, uh, I didn't. I absolutely did not. I did yeah. not want it to be called Argent. I was one of those people, when I was at school, um, if if uh, a teacher would call out the name Argent, I would cringe, you know. Yeah. I was just I was just self-conscious about my name. I don't know why. Um, but uh, I did not choose it. Um, I, we were going through several names and everything, and then our drummer and guitarist, Bob Henry and uh, Russ Ballard, said, oh, you know, you have to call it Argent. I said, oh, I don't know. No, no. But in the end, that's what it turned out to be. Yeah. Well, how, how, how did that experience of um, being in Argent differ from being in the Zombies? Um, obviously different people, but, but, but was it a different experience? It was a different experience. It was, um, I mean, because of, because of the musicians in themselves, it was a bit heavier. Um, I always feel that the first zombie album we made, which we did in a very small studio, Sound Techniques, when it was just started, yeah. which became a very good studio, but it, it was... A bit of a small sound, a very good engineer of Jerry Boys. But because of the nature of the studio, it was a bit of a small sound. And actually, there was a compilation um, of five Argent albums put out a few years ago by Sony, which unfortunately they've, they've withdrawn. 
um, where with modern uh, compression techniques and multiband compression, etc., suddenly the sound is big enough on, on that particular combination. I think it was very well mastered um, to compete. The actual information that's on the record suddenly competes sound-wise with everything else that's around. And I honestly believe that that album would have been a hit album, which it wasn't, um, that first album, if the, the sound levels and um, the impact of the actual sound would have been able to compete with, with other stuff that's alike. And it's very much a, um, a, um, a natural step on from the Zombies, that first mm. album. But also, you know, I've always been very curious musically. Um, and during, um, during the existence of Argent, I started to want to try out, um, you know, different modern harmonies and, and, um, and, and, and got involved at one point with this sort of progressive thing. Um, in fact, we went to Abbey Road um, yeah. and we started uh, with our third album, the one that, that gave, gave us Hold Your Head Up, um, and Peter Baum uh, was the engineer yeah. at the time. Um, and he got us a much bigger sound, um, and which we were knocked out with, um, you know, initially. Uh, but then it got a bit diverse because I wanted to um, explore many different areas and, and Russ didn't really. He wanted to just remain a song man. And I, yeah. and I quite understand that now. Um, but, you know, that was our, that's how we diverged, really. Um, mm. And in the end, it, it, it came to a natural conclusion. But whereas with the Zombies, I think we were all on the same page while we still existed. And we were, uh, as, you, as you will well know, we, we ended, our, um, ended our career in, in the UK by recording at Abbey Road with the Austin mm. Oracle. Wow. Were you, were, you, were you next door to Sergeant Peppers? Was that, I think was, I've heard a story that you were both making those records concurrently. Not quite, um, ah. but the Beatles... Now, I don't know if you, you could probably put me right on this, but um, when we had a very autocratic producer mm. uh, called Ken Jones from a previous generation, one generation previous to us, great musician, and, and, but we always felt he did a great job on the, on the first session that we did because he just took the music as it was and got the best out of it. Um, after that, it always seemed to me, because he was an old school producer, he was always looking at almost a gimmick. He was almost looking at, well, what mm. made that first single a success? Oh, I know, it was the breathiness. So he would then try and exaggerate, rather than just take what was given to him and execute it well, he would, he would just try and pick on the thing that he thought would sell. And it was driving us crazy. Um, and because we were so based in the UK at the time, even though much later we found out we almost always had a hit somewhere in the world, but we didn't know about that. In the UK, we only ever had one hit single at that point. Um, and it was on the cards that we might split up. Um, so Chris White and myself, the two writers in the band, um, said if we are going to split up, we have to at least try and produce an album ourselves and get our own ideas about how our songs are sounding in our head. So Ken Jones helped us get um, the sessions at Abbey Road. Now, I understand, and I might be wrong in this, that at the time, only EMI artists were allowed to record there. I don't know yeah. if that's true. Yeah, That was true, so yeah. I think we may well have been the first band outside EMI because we've got to deal with CBS. I don't know if that's you, true. Yeah, they, they had reciprocal agreements pre-rock and roll with, um, I think, with RCA. They distributed Elvis. and the, So uh, some RCA artists would have come over and used Abbey Road. Mm. Um, but I don't think any bands on rival non-affiliated labels would have recorded it. I think he probably would have been the first. Well, I don't know how I don't know how he'd have got you in, quite frankly. I, I have no idea, but we took took our hat off to him because yeah. because he was so autocratic. He would never let us go to mix sessions or anything. Um, but um, when we when we said, "Well, Ken, we're going to produce the next album ourselves," he said, "Fine." He said, "I'll help you. I'll help you try and get something." And it was through a connection of his that we managed to get EMI uh, mm. um, EMI Studios, yeah, as they were called at the time. Yeah. Um, but, which, which studio uh, were you in? Were you in two, the Beatles one, or did you go in three? We were in three. Yeah. 
Uh, and um, the Beatles, the previous week, as I understand it, had walked out having just finished Sergeant Pepper. Uh, and we were oh. the next band in, as, yeah. as, as I recall being told. And the great thing is that they'd left all their, two things actually, they'd left all their equipment over the studio, uh, in, oh. including a Mellotron that they'd been knocked out with. Um, and, and I pounced on that, thinking I could put some orchestral lines on, but not realising that the Mellotron has, even better for us, it had, it had a sound of its own that, that, um, that, that almost nobody else was using. So th that and another factor uh, in, in that, um, I, I understand that the Beatles, and maybe Lennon, I don't know, said, oh, we're so knocked out with the Brian Wilson Pet Sounds album. Um, and that was done on 8-track. And, and everyone thought, 8-track, my God, you know. I mean, nowadays we've got sort of 125 or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. we want. But so 8-track, that's wonderful. Um, and, um, and, they, and, they, and the engineers there said, well, and, and the boffins there said, well, there's nothing we can do because there's not an 8-track in the country. Um, and then... Um, uh, apocryphally, um, Lennon said, well, sort something out. And, you know, they sort of scratched their head and stayed up all hours. And um, very soon, they, they um, invented the technique of two four tracks being yeah. synced together. Um, and then I think that pro there was probably one track syncing used, but, but that left at least seven tracks. Yeah. So, so suddenly, we did Odyssey and Oracle... Um, I would typically, uh, we had all, very little money, uh, but we were in right after the Beatles. So I would um, do what we'd rehearsed and we rehearsed very carefully each song um, because we only had, you know, three hours to record the, the whole thing or whatever. Um, and basically with a Mellotron, it meant that I could put down my piano part, say, um, it was usually piano, occasionally harpsichord and occasionally organ. Um, but I could, I could do that. Uh, and then suddenly have the spontaneity of having, you know, if we finished the session early and, and I remember on, on, on most of them, we, we would put down what we recorded because the engineers were so brilliant. Peter Vince and Jeff Emmerich. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Really yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we were knocked out with the sounds they were getting. Um, but then say two and a half hours, or, or two and a quarter hours through the session, we'd have recorded the basic tracks because it was only, you know, um, on a, like, like four tracks. And then suddenly we'd have another three tracks for spontaneity. Um, and I would um, typically, I would then, on about half the album, I would put the Mellotron that the Beatles had left hanging about the studio. Um, and it was fantastic. And it was just that combination of, Fantastic technicians there, um, and uh, and and so getting the sound, you know, quickly, and and certainly Jeff Emmerich when we did time the season. Um, sorry, I'm I'm I'm, I'm whizzing ahead, um, but with um, with the Mellotron, it meant I, I could I could use that, and it became yeah. very much a a signature sound um, of of Odyssey and Oracle. And one of the first things that most people remember. Um, a bit, it's probably not the very first, but but on Mellotron, and obviously the Beatles have got there before us as well. Um, and the mood is, I think, because uh, Mike, I think Mike Pinder helped develop the Mellotron, so uh, he he would yeah. use that as well. But I always remember, for instance, the story of um, time of the season, because I'd written this song very quickly, um, and I had it in my head that that could be a hit when I just played it to Chris White in the beginning. Because um, it felt simple, it felt like it had mm. a bit of soloing in it, you know, which which she's not there had had, um, mm. but which turned out to be like a. I, I never thought it, of it as a jazzy thing, but looking back on it, you know, it was quite unusual for um, rock singles to have that sort of improvisation, and it was improvisation because um, I've heard alternative takes of time of the season, and the solo is completely different. Um, but I've now got so used to it that you know um certainly the first solo um in the middle 
I play pretty much as is on the record now when we do do it live. But mm. in the second half, the, the long play out, which is very long on stage now, um, you know, not, not like the three minute, three and a half yeah. minute single that, that time this is must. Um, we can take it anywhere and that keeps it fresh too. So, yeah. so that's really nice. Um, but um, I always remember on time of the season, about two, two and a half hours through the session, um, we, we, we just, we just sort of gone boom, 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 uh, but yeah, sorry, sorry, just with a backbeat, boom, 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 you know, that, that was the sort of yeah. rhythm. Um, but when we first did the backing track, I remember that Jeff Emery somehow had got such a great sound on the, the tom-tom and the bass together, which was that riff, basically. Yeah. And I thought, how's he done that? It's very simple, but it just sounds great. Um, and, and we were all very excited listening back to it. And, and we put a guide vocal down and the track was, you know, pretty close to being finished. Um, but um, I suddenly said to Hugh, do you know what? I can hear, um, I can hear a clap just before the backbeat. Yeah. And I can hear a <sighs> just after the backbeat. Um, and he said, well, we've got half an hour left. Why don't you just go through there and do it? And this was so typical of, the, of those, the, the tracks that we recorded at the time. I said, are you sure? Do you want to do it? He said, no, no, you go and do it. You've got, you've got the idea in your head. So I did it once through, didn't think anything more of it. Um, but again, Jeff got a fantastic sound on the clap and, and, the, and the vocal percussion. And I didn't know how he did that. And I've never been able to replicate it. I've, I've tried to replicate it so many times. You know, that sound. But yeah. it was the best clap sound and, and sort of voice percussion I've ever heard. And he was just so quick. Um, and, and that was really great. And, and on other tracks, um, someone would have a... a um, we, we, we'd do the harmonies that we'd prepared, but someone would have an idea about uh, putting something, a, a little bit of a counterpoint on the top. And, and we just do that very quickly. And it was just a lovely experience recording there for that, mm. for that album. And it's such it is amazing. it's such a fantastic record. Yeah. What, what why did you split up? Because at the time, now I've got to be very careful of what I say here. <laughs> um, there were factors of um, the people that weren't writers. We had very honest publishers, and that yeah. wasn't terribly usual at the time. So Chris and I have plenty of income. The other three yeah. guys in the group didn't have any money. Now mm. you, you have to bear in mind that we'd. Um, around the world, but particularly in America, we'd headline tours. I mean, we only had a couple of tours in America and then another residency in New, in New York. But the first residency was with, you know, the number one record in the nation. And yet we only broke even on that from yeah. a live point of view. Wow. So the other guys at the end of three years together only, only had enough to break even. They hadn't got any profit at all. And the guitarist came up to us one day and said, listen, guys, I'm getting married and um, I've got no money, so I'm going to have to break up. That was one of the things that we, we felt. Um, and there was a lot of ripping off going on, really, from several quarters. Someone was making a huge amount of money. Um, yeah. We later found out that, that they were from someone else in the particular organisation we were talking about. Someone else said that... Um, they, oh, I can't remember how how much they made, but it, it, it was, uh, I can't remember now, but it was an enormous amount of money and we weren't getting yeah. it. Um, so that's why we broke up. We always remained friends. It was nothing to do with anything but money at that time. And we yeah. thought we were just winding down, that we got no success. And then, yeah. it, of course, it was, um, we hadn't had a hit in America. I mean, everything, my God, everything was so compressed in those days. Um, we hadn't had a hit for since uh 65 so this was 67 for the last two years it's over then it's over you know <laughs> it's amazing know. so when when you then left argent or argent argent ended you seem to go off into all sorts of areas making music absolutely fascinating stuff. I, I discovered the the classical um, piano album you did today. Oh yeah, yeah. Some absolutely lovely stuff on there. Yeah, I mean, you did that much. and TV work and um, and the jazz collaborations with John Dankworth. Yeah, was, was this this is talking back to your influences almost? You've gone into the pop and rock thing and then come out the other side and 
indulging all those interests. It looks fantastic. Did you feel free when you started working on your own? I thought it was something I really needed to do because I've been on the road for, what, 12 years or something something like that. And I had a young family and, you know, I just thought, and in the 70s, everything got so big and complicated. You know, we used to take a, 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 the English hammered organ over. It used to come up on the conveyor belt in the... Um, I mean, it, they'd never do it now, but it was ridiculous. It was like Reg Dixon, um, <laughs> you know, on, on, on the... Uh, on, yeah. on whatever you call it, you know, the thing that goes around, just appearing, you know. Yeah. And it was just mad. And, and also, we didn't really understand everything to do with what you had. I mean, we obviously understood about voltage. I didn't understand about cycles. Um, and so the, the Hammond would also, always often sound terrible for a while. And then all these old uh, non-digital um, instruments, obviously, would break down all the time. And then you used to have to take your own PA systems, which you would never do now. Um, it was just like a nightmare. And I thought, I've had enough of this. And, you know, we, the group was diverging uh, as far as the personnel was concerned. So we thought, well, this is time to come off the road. And then I thought, well, do you know what? I've, I've, I've always retained the same interest in music, and I do to this day with classical music and jazz as well as rock music. Um, I, I didn't see any difference. You know, even at the beginning, even while I was completely knocked out with sort of bark, and, and, and I, I, I was trying to leave the choir at that point because I, I was, um, Peter Herford persuaded me to stay on, um, on the, the Lay Clark side, um, he said, can't you sing alto for a little while? And I said, okay. And then I kept saying, well, I've got to leave now because I was in the band. And, yeah. uh, and you know, the two things just didn't mix. Um, I, I, would, I would leave rushing on a Sunday evening to try and get to a gig that we had, you know, and I, and I daren't tell him about it in those days, you know, it's so different. <laughs> um, but I never saw any difference between listening to a piece of Stravinsky or, or a piece of Elvis. I really didn't. It all, all felt to me like water from the same well, you know. And, I, and I, never, I never lost that. So when we came off the road, I thought, well, how old am I now? I was, uh, that was 1975, so I was 30 then. And, and I thought, um, I thought, there's so much I can't do. And I thought, I thought my sight reading's terrible and, I sh- and it shouldn't... I mean, I could always sing anything that I saw because of being in the choir, but I couldn't play anything. I knew where all the notes were. So I thought for a year, I would just not take anything that came my way um, unless it was hugely interesting from a different source. And I, and I took any piece of music that I liked from a huge collection of popular sheet music or whatever... And I would play it in tempo at the piano, but no matter how, if it was funereally slowly, I'd still try and keep it in tempo and get an idea. And at the end of that year, um, my sight reading was totally different. It was just like a, um, it's just like learning a language really and just mm. doing it. And, and, and So I, that was something I thought I ought to be able to do. And I wanted to expand... Um, my horizons really um, and that led to the first thing it led to was Andrew Lloyd Webber because yeah. I'd done a piece of music um, for uh, the Royal Academy Laser Exhibition and it was it was called um, I'm trying to think what it was called now it was uh, on the A side I did the, the first gymnopathy but mm. uh, done with with synthesizers and stuff oh, nice. on the other side uh, I did something called Light Fantastic. And I don't, don't know if this is true, but apparently a guy I was involved with at the time went to um, Albra and he he played, a pa- he said that he played it to Rostropovich and right. he said Rostropovich loved it and, and wanted me to sort of score it for cello, which I didn't, I, I really wow. didn't feel capable of doing. But if that's true, you know, it's really wonderful, but it felt out of my... It, that felt like something that I, I wasn't ready to approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway... And I think with um, variations, 
Rod. You know, I'm just yeah. interested. I mean, that's quite the lineup. You, Gary Moore, and Julian. You know, yeah. playing this classical music. If you like, did you just turn up and do it, or did you have some input to it? Because it feels so creative and tight at the same time. Well, what happened was that. Um, uh, uh, because of this uh, light, fantastic, and gymnopody, mm-hmm. um, someone called Roy Featherstone from MCA um, got me to go to a lunch, and I found myself sitting next to Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he said, "Oh, I'm just putting this project together," um, he, he, and he, he sort of described it. I said, "Andrew, I, I really don't think I, I can, you know, my sight reading." And, and my reading, I, I don't think I'm up to that at all. And he said, oh, dear boy, one has a feeling. <laughs> so, so I know. So, um, so I, um, in the end, I said yes. And, and we had rehearsals and, and we premiered it, as he always used to do with his, uh, his stuff, down at his festival in Sydmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way he did it was he would always write the top line out but then, really, John and I, um, I, and he would write the cello part, obviously, and, um, and he would have ideas about the chord sequence and everything. But it was often, it was partly written, but it was very often just chords. And, and like you do in a recording session, we made up our parts, really, um, but to, to what he wanted. But, yeah. You know, so it was very much composed by Andrew, but we made up our own parts and then an orchestrator would come in and he would pick apart, apart what we played and score it. Um, so that's how that came about. Gary Moore played guitar mm. on it. Um, Barbara Thompson sadly just departed and yeah. uh, John Heisman too. Um, Unbelievable. I and know. I that sort of... You know, of course, it's become the iconic, uh, became the iconic theme tune to Melvin's show. But I think uh, what I love about the it's like the South album, Bank show, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah can, I, so, can I just tell you something about that? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't know if I should uh, put this information out. As long as Andrew doesn't hear it, I don't mind. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know the bit that goes. Um, uh, Andrew had just written some boogie bass there. And. That was completely my invention going do 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 and that's the bit they used on the South Bank yeah. show. Yes. <laughs> but, but, then, but then of course Claim that. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um then of course um Skip Humphreys, who was the uh head of music at ITV at the time, uh, they would um got it to be on the first South Bank show. Um and a complete performance of it. And yeah. we did that, um, so that that became pretty iconic, you know, because it became a very successful show, and it Absolutely. was there all the time. Um, so that that was the story of, of of my introduction to Andrew, really. And I was really co- a fairly close friend of Andrew's for a, a few years, and, and worked on all his projects actually. Did, did you do Masquerade? I did do Masquerade, yeah, uh, yeah. And also, I think what I love about the album Dave was talking about earlier, classically speaking, is that. Yeah. You, you can sit and play that Elgar and Ravel and Chopin like as well as anyone else, but you've got there's a freedom in how you play it, which I love listening to it. And also, well, you know, tracks like Fiesta. I mean, do you still write piano music? You know, if you like in the classical style. I'll tell you how Fiesta happened, and that was because I wanted to get Independence of Hands when I was having my time off, oh, so yeah. to speak. Um, and so I just, um, I just composed this sort of perpetual motion thing in the left hand um and then i thought i want to be able to play anything on the right hand even if it's not locked into that time it can be sort of free over it Great. and i used to very much enjoy doing that and and the center section of fiesta is is quite jazzy really in, in a weather report forty sort of way but i tell you what i can't play any of that stuff now because i think i i, I took a year I took a year out and, and I, I practiced for three hours a day for a year. And I thought, what I'm going to do is take any piece of music that I particularly like and try not to look at its simplicity or difficulty. Um, uh, there were some things I knew I'd never be able to do. Like, um, I mean, I love Ravel, but I'd never be able to play Gaspard de la Nuit. I mean, I, I, I never would. Uh, I knew that. Um, but, you know, I wanted to have a go at the... Um, Oh, 
what what is it? Uh, Tombeau de Couperin, uh, yeah. at least the first two movements of it. Yeah, um, beautiful. I, I, and I, I liked what I did with that. Um, and I thought, I'm going to have a go at a couple of Chopin studies, which I can't come near now. Um, but I managed to make a fist of those. And strangely enough, some of the things that I love, and I chose um, a couple of pieces of Bach, but the, the, the famous one in E minor, you know, the, it's very simple to play. I probably could play that now. Yeah. And I like that least of anything of my performance on that. I thought, my God, I wish I could go back and play that again. It felt very clumsy to me. But some of the more difficult things, strangely enough, seem to come off. Well, they certainly do. It's interesting. I mean, Ravel is a great, you know, everybody loves Ravel. Dave loves Ravel, you know, and I think. Yeah. Did you hear that? And also, you admire Herbie Hancock. Did you hear his um, Ravel piano concerto take? No. Is it good? Check it out. Check it out. That's the G minor one. Yeah. G major. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. G minor. And it. G major. Anyway, what he does, he sort of improvises around it, and you think, oh, my God, how could anybody do that to this great composer? But it really works. It's really cool. He's such a musician. Yeah. But the, I mean, this, the, the middle movement is um, terribly Gershwin-esque, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, totally. You know, so it's got, a, yeah. it's got a real sort of jazz feeling to it. And, I'm, and, and I know he would, like, I mean, that's one of my uh, favourite periods of composition. People at the time mm. of Stravinsky and Debussy and Ravel, um, and strangely enough, if you listen to Bill Evans, he um, a lot of those chord voicings, you know, yeah. are, are very, very similar to Ravel, actually. Um, and nice and Ravel loved Gershwin, and, and a lot of those guys were knocked out with Gershwin. There was so much going on around that, that, that period. Yeah. Yeah, turn of the century. I guess we're, we're sort of coming to the end of our time. There was okay. one question I, I did want to ask is the to focus on on the, the zombies. When, when did you get back together again? And, and, and I think it's probably worth explaining that you're out on the road so that people can go out and find you. When, when did you get back together? Well, people in the UK you know, just mostly have got no knowledge of this at all because we're we're less sort of popular or famous in the UK than almost anywhere else, certainly in America. But what happened was I did a, a charity concert for John Dankworth in 1999 uh, to raise money. And John became a, a big friend. Um, and Colin was in the audience. Uh, and on the spur of the moment, I, I said, I know Colin's in the audience. Does he want to get up and... And, and sing, you know, a song, uh, you know, maybe time the season or something. And he got up um, and, and sang, and it felt like we'd been together two weeks before rather than about 30 years or whatever it was at that time. Um, and then Colin um, had, had just happened to go out on a few solo gigs, and he, he was having real trouble with some of the depths that he was getting on the gigs. And he, he phoned me up and said, do you want to do... He said, I've got six gigs coming up. Do you want to do them with me? And I said, oh, no, Colin, I can't get involved in all that again. Um, but anyway, I did it. And then I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed it. And slowly, very, very slowly, those six gigs have turned into 22 years of, of traveling around the world, you know, <laughs> particularly in America. And we've really built a, a big thing in America now. We play to big audiences. When we first went over there, I remember going down to Georgia and we played to about 12 people. Um, but but now, you know, we play in the South, which we were never particularly big uh, with the Zombies or Argent in the South. But now we, we absolutely sell things out uh, down there. And then, of course, we, we did manage to finish the journey getting to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and uh, mm. being inducted in 2019. Too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, thoroughly well-deserved. Yeah. Thank you. And, you're, and you've just come back from the States and, and you're just you're touring the UK next year, is it? Uh, yeah, we've, we've had to put that. This is the third time we're going to try the same tour because yeah. of COVID, basically. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that. You're, you're playing London. I've got it in my diary. I've got a ticket. Um, oh, look, looking forward to seeing playing? it. Yeah, I think you're playing. Um, it's in. It's in um, Chelsea, somewhere around oh, Chelsea. Yeah. Under under the. Um, it's the, the venue in the stadium, the football stadium. Yeah. I'd be very um, interested to see what the attendances are like in England because they've been fantastic in the UK, in the US, 
and the reactions have been really yeah. unbelievable in the US. Um, but um, in the UK, I, I, it's an unknown country to, to us now I, because we haven't played there for so long, you know. Well, I, I went back to try and buy another ticket and they're sold out. So oh, that, that, that particular venue is sold out, yeah. I haven't, oh, I haven't tried elsewhere, I've just tried the London thing. Oh, so good. Well, if you're listening to this, but go and buy some tickets. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>